it's not an intro so much as a conversation about it's a conversation. what's happening in the world of cheese. Yeah. There's it, a lot to say. We have actually another 20 more minutes we could fill, <laughs> if need be. We have so much to say on cheese. <laughs> Hi everyone, Steph Angstad here. Sue Miller. And we're coming at you from the Covered Bridge Farm in Berks County, where we've spoken to you before after a sweaty long day of cheese making in this lovely uh, August weather. It's the last day of August, Sue. I can't believe it. No, tomorrow. 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 <laughs> we we'll see, that's, we're just busy. We know the date. We're so busy. <laughs> we're so filled with whey. How can we think straight? We're, uh, we're pretty psyched because Collective Creamery, our collaboration, and Bertrand Hills Farm and Valley Milk House, um, part of an article in the Philadelphia Inquirer that was published yesterday. And it uh, was a little bit of a conversation around the dairy crisis that's going on and a little bit about cheese and the, and the role that cheese has in all of this. Yeah, the role that, um, you know, the connection be- between the milk, the cheese how artisan producers are working with farmers like you or somebody like me who is a farmstead is using our own milk to make the cheese. So, um, you know, this is not a new conversation, but if we can keep it out in front of the public multiple times over and over and over, we're going to be able to change the landscape of how people are drinking their milk, supporting dairy farmers, supporting cheesemakers. Yeah. You know, one of your missions is to, you know, have cheese at the American dinner table. <laughs> this is our mission, isn't it? That's right. I, I didn't realize when I entered the world of cheese how relevant, how important of a role it plays in agriculture. It's not just that we are turning an agricultural product into this refined food. It's so much more than that. I mean, if you think about cheese, you think about farmland preservation. You think about a way to add value to a farm the way that you guys have done at Bertrand Hills mm-hmm. over the past few decades. And um, it's it's pretty remarkable. I mean, now you're going through this expansion, you're building a new creamery, and it's all in the name of cheese and because of cheese. It, it is. And, you know, and beyond that, we have this cultural impact we can make on a community or a region through the cheese making, you know, much the way it is in Europe and Vermont. These cheeses give a sense of identity and a sense of place. You know, when you have Valley Milk House cheese, you are really tasting the best of Berks County to me and the best of grass-fed milk and, you know, the beautiful hand of the cheesemaker. And hopefully we're doing the same in Chester County at Bertrand Hills. And our friends all the way across the state and all the way across the country are making these cultural impacts on a region because of their connection to the farmland and the milk coming through in this fermented product. Yeah, it's, it's really true. You know, one of the phrases that um, the, uh, the writer, Katie Park, who's a wonderful new um, contributor to the Philly Inquirer, one of the phrases that she used in the article was fancy cheese. And I've been thinking about that all day because I kind of resented it. I... I don't want to be associated with something that is like pretentious in any way or just, you know, upper crust, um, even though I think that is the association that artisan cheese gets. And I work really hard to talk to my farmers market customers about um, how the cheese, the price point behind the cheese is not because I'm making a lot of money. It's because I'm paying a premium to the farmer to produce a certain kind of milk that is really wonderful and to help that family stay on the farm. And I think when I explain it in those terms, it's not so fancy anymore, actually. Um, It's actually just really practical. And uh, I think that that's a really important conversation to have. Yeah, and the pricing of these cheeses is, like you said, not a result of it being fancy, but that's what it costs to produce it. 
you know, it takes a lot of dedication, a lot of work, A, to farm the land, produce the milk. You have to pick up the milk. You have to make the cheese. You have to age the cheese. Sometimes for six or eight months. And then bring it to the customer. This really um, sophisticated process is in place to create this beautiful agricultural product. Right. And that's not talking about the failures either, because I have plenty of them. And there are lost batches. And that's a really expensive loss when you think about you know, what people are paying for milk. So, um, you know, as it relates to the challenges that dairy farmers are facing right now, in a market where what the average price of milk in Pennsylvania is $17? Well, it's actually, that is at the highest level and nobody actually gets the $17 and it's, it's really complicated. But once, you know, you have to pay all of these costs associated with getting the milk to market. So we have to pay for hauling. We have to pay for, um, a, a fuel premium. We have to pay for marketing. I mean, lab, uh, lab work, lab work. The last milk check, we got $13 a hundred weight for our milk to go on the commodity milk market. It, our cost of production is about $17 a hundred weight. So that's why it's really important for us to be making cheese, to be able to um, add value to that really beautiful milk that is much more well suited to cheese making than to going out there on the fluid milk market and being valued at $13 a hundred weight. You know, I want people to be asking, where does their milk come from? You know, I want them to identify with the fact that it should be coming from the region in which they live. We should be supporting the farmers from our community. Uh, you know, one of the things that's happening is milk is coming in from very, very large dairies in the Midwest and upper Midwest into our region and coming into our milk market. You know, I'm not worried about the thousand cow dairy, Stephanie. I know that sounds like a shocking number. I'm worried about the dairies that have, you know, 40,000 cows under their management or 60,000 cows under their management. They're the type of dairies that Walmart is working with. I'm sure you're aware of that Dean Foods um, situation where 47 dairy farms in Pennsylvania lost their milk market. And this didn't just happen in Pennsylvania. It's happened in Tennessee all over the East Coast. And that's because Walmart built their own production facility or processing facility. And they're contracting with these large entities. Do you want your milk to come from somebody that milks 65,000 cows? And, you know, for, for those of you who, uh, you should check out the article at the Philly Inquirer. But for those of you who aren't as familiar with what's happening in the dairy industry, there's an oversupply of milk, simply put, um, because of reduced consumption, because of all sorts of challenges, because of this global commodity market, basically. Um, and there are, it's really hard right now as a dairy farmer to keep your farm afloat. And so for, for folks who think that that might not be relevant to them, look around at your landscape, because I guarantee you that a lot of that farmland is pasture and grain for cows, for dairy yeah. cows. And, and hey, what would happen right. if that farmer went under and it were sold to development? Um, nobody wants to see their communities changed in that way. I really like what you're saying there, Steph, because, you know, the dairy industry is going to survive this crisis. The question is, what will it look like? I don't know. It's that uncertain. I mean, we're, we're going to lose 5% of farms here in Pennsylvania just this year. Wow. Right. So go into your corner store. Ask where the milk's coming from. Go into a restaurant. Ask where the dairy products are coming from. I think it's important for us to keep talking about this. There's so much to say and never enough time, Sue. You're going to be hearing more from <laughs> us on this subject. We're really just touching yeah. the surface, but we wanted to mention it. We wanted to thank Katie Park for her coverage of the issue, and we're certainly going to keep talking about it uh, and talking to cheesemakers and dairy farmers who are really in, in the thick of it um, and learning more about what their solutions are and how they're rising above. Right. And and you can find um, some of these cheesemakers who are working with small family farms or our farmstead by going on the Pennsylvania Cheese Guild website, pacheeseguild.org, going to your local farmer's market wherever you live, stopping in a cheese shop or a food co-op and saying, 
what is in here that is small batch that supports a small family farm? These are some things you can do. This was certainly a hot topic at the American Cheese Society conference where we were a few weeks ago together um, as a crew, Alex Jones and Sue and myself. And uh, we we had such an inspiring experience there. I certainly did. I'm just so proud of our state. We made a lot of noise and we, we took home a lot of awards. That it was, was celebratory. Cool. It was. Um one of the one of the noteworthy um, speakers was Simran Sati. She is a oh the global, keynote the keynote. She's a global food writer. She writes a lot about coffee and chocolate, um, and now increasingly she's covering the topic of cheese. And her really keynote, focusing on that sense of identity, isn't she? She she really is, and. Um, our partner in crime, Alex Jones, was wise to snag her for a quick interview. And we're really proud because it made Culture Magazine's top 10 cheese podcast episodes. So be sure to check that article out in Culture Magazine and also listen to the interview. It is fantastic. It was such a um, wonderful dive into identity as we're talking about and really a question of who are the people behind a cheese you know cheese identity is being formed by the people Simran Sati is from Punjab India and was talking about how farmers from her region have um, emigrated to Italy and are now the people behind the milking of the cows the red cows, the Parmigiano-Reggiano cows. The red cows that make yeah. Parmigiano-Reggiano cheese. And so while we think of these Italian cheeses, especially Parmigiano-Reggiano, as being so protected and so preserved. and being it's iconic. This, yeah, centuries-old institution mm -hmm. regulated so strictly um, in terms of preserving the identity of this cheese, Simran Seti's question was... But who are the hands milking the these cows? cows? Right. Punjabi. So right. it raised all these really interesting questions. And I'm so happy that Alex was bold enough to <laughs> sneak her up to our hotel room. Honestly, it's one of my favorite episodes ever. Yeah. I loved it. I, I think I sent a text to everybody. This is one of the best episodes we've ever had. Yeah. So well done, Thank Alex. you, Alex. Thank you, Simran, for your time and doing that. And we're just really excited about being able to talk to them. And we're going to link, we'll have Alex link to um, the podcast and the interview article from the uh, Philadelphia Inquirer in the show notes. So be sure to check it out. Yes, absolutely. But most exciting is what's coming up for you next. Sue, set this one up for us because you, you've known them for so long. Peter Dixon has done so much for the cheese making community here in the United States. I mean, we're not going to talk so much in this podcast about education. We're going to save that for another interview, but honestly, I dare say he has influenced the trajectory of American cheese in such a profound way because he has traveled all over the country consulting with people, teaching cheese making. One of the things that really fills his heart is to work with farmstead producers. He loves farmers. He loves to see them um, prosper through creating a value-added product. And he's totally selfless. And so is his wife, Rachel, when it comes to um, you know bringing this world of cheese here in the United States up to a higher level. And, um, you know, I took my very first cheese making class with Peter. Rachel was a very good friend of mine. I was super happy when the two of them got together um, and brought themselves to Parish Hill Creamery. So um, for me, this is a really special interview. And for you, it's really important to listen because this is somebody who is kind of changing and creating the conversation around cheese. I hope you guys love this uh, snapshot into Parish Hill. Enjoy. Cheers. Hi. 
Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Collective Creamery podcast. We have a really special episode this week. We are at the American Cheese Society Conference here in our home state of Pennsylvania in Pittsburgh. And we're really excited to be like going to all kinds of great educational sessions, meeting all kinds of amazing cheesemakers. What do you think about that stuff? It's been wonderful. I really like the last 20 minutes of every session where there are questions and we get to hear from the audience. And that's where the real juice comes out, you know, which start to understand the issues and the challenges and the questions that are facing cheesemakers today. It's it's really exciting. I've gotten a lot of, out of it so far. How about you, Alex? This is my first ACS conference, so I have just been like wild-eyed eating cheese, too much cheese uh, at every turn, pretty much, and really enjoying seeing what this larger community is like f- from out of my little like local corner of Pennsylvania. It's been really, really fun. Pittsburgh is beautiful, and we're super excited uh, for the awards to be announced shortly after our recording. And we're especially excited that so many amazing small-scale pasture-based cheesemakers are under one roof, and we are getting a lot of episodes recorded in our downtime during the conference. And today, we have a couple of cheesemakers who, for as long as we've kind of had a relationship with them, it's crazy that we've not been able to sit down with them until then, but we're all always like ping-ponging around uh, everywhere, and it's hard to get everyone in one place. But we are here with Parish Hill Creamery, Peter Dixon and Rachel Fritz Schall. Hello. Hello. We're both here. <laughs> yeah. Thank goodness. It's, Thank goodness. It's so great because we, since we started this podcast, we have seen you a couple of times in Pennsylvania and we just are so busy like being together. We've never had a chance to sit down and really interview you and talk about things. It's especially significant to me that we're here talking with you today. Peter uh, Dixon has been my mentor, my guide, and Rachel, both of them are some of my best friends and friends of our family. And what, Peter, when did we first meet? Like 15 years ago? Uh, It must have been at least 15 years ago. Uh, There was a class that I was hired to come down to Pennsylvania to teach. And I believe it was at, it was in a small town, uh, I can think near you. Yeah, it was no Western, it was Western PA. It was was uh, Slippery Rock State University. Oh, was that? Is where we were. That was the first one. Remember, oh. you did all the cheeses over yeah. like an open fire kind oh, I remember, of a thing? I remember that one. But the <laughs> one I was remembering that we first met at was, I think it was in a, a community center or a church, oh, uh, I believe. that's yeah. right. Remember? That really in a goes. small town. That goes really far yeah, back. It might be 20 years yeah. we're talking. It's a long time. Because then you didn't start making cheese until right. a few years after that. Yeah, it took us meeting. a little yeah. a minute to get started. And... You know, at that point in time, there was just so little technical support for cheesemakers. And, you know, Peter was like a really bright light for all of us, um, the people he's influenced in the world of cheese. And I thought, darn, maybe I ought to make him one of my best friends. (laughs) So and it it turned out that we did another class with Rachel. Rachel, we've known each other through an organization called PASA. You were the education director. You designed a class with Peter. And unbeknownst to all of us in the class, the two of you fell in love. It's true. And we were married. 2009. Uh, Ma- married 2010. A year yep. after that, or a little over a year after that. Yeah. Oh, so romantic. You know, and mm-hmm. and we, I, at, at Bertrand Hills Farm, we have entered into a project with you beyond our great friendship called the Cornerstone Project. And I think this is a really great way to kick off this interview because it's going to be talking about really the next step of, of kind of your core philosophy there at Parish Hill of using Native culture. And Peter, I know your travels all around the country and around the world influenced your decision to do that. Can you just talk about that for a little bit? So in in 1996, I got the opportunity to go work as an international consultant in in, uh, Albania first and then shortly after Macedonia. And um, that led me into becoming a permanent staff with these projects that were being operated by Land Lakes using U.S. Agency for International Development money. And uh, it was working directly with entrepreneurs who were doing dairy products, mostly cheese. And I noticed that none of them were using any kind of cultures in the cheese making. The milk was only from the previous evening 
and the morning, and it was brought in directly to the creameries. Sometimes they would bring it in right after evening if the weather was going to be too hot overnight because none of the farmers had any way of cooling their milk. So uh, the cheesemakers were using milk that was active right from a few hours from milking. The bacteria that were indigenous to the milk were already working, making acid from the sugar, and they they didn't need to use what what we are, are having to use in the, the U.S., which are commercial-type starter cultures to get the fermentation going. So that was amazing. I mean, the results were not always great. Sometimes they were very good. Sometimes they were poor quality. And then when I got back home and started to build my own business in the end of the 90s, it became a thing that I got really focused on. Like, how how was cheese made in the old times, actually? Because I had a window from that experience into the old times. I mean, those countries, they were operating their dairy farms and, m- for the most part, the uh, creameries, cheese houses, like it might have been a hundred years ago, you know, in our country. Yeah. Such an amazing experience. I remember um, you telling me a long time ago, we were doing a slideshow. You were doing a slideshow of pictures, these beautiful people, you know, making these great cheeses. And you said you were hired to do food safety programming with them, but you learned so much from them. And immediately that's when I knew I adored you ah. because you saw all the treasures and people that, that a lot of um, society kind of um, would write off as being uneducated or yeah. these methods being, you know, not safe. But you saw well, the specialness were, of it. They were they were craftspeople. They, they knew how to harness those microbes, you know, usually for the best results. Sometimes it, the milk was just too active. But then as I began to read and do research about how – it's been done worldwide where I, I got into more like the European uh, s- cultures, haha, no pun intended. But that, I mean, totally uh, what I, I totally meant it because it was, it's a two meaning there. Very good, right? Uh, yeah, and so, uh, so I had a friend in New Hampshire uh, who was running a small farm. She only had two Jersey cows she was milking, and she did not want to, after I went to help her with her cheddar cheese, and she wasn't using any kind of commercial cultures, but she needed to get something to help this fermentation get started in her milk. And uh, so rather than use relying on a commercial-type culture that we would buy from a company that are usually... I mean, I think they're all owned by international pharmaceuticals uh, at this point uh, that make these cultures for cheese making. We decided to investigate together how it might have been done beyond just letting the milk sour on its own and turn into cheese. So I found out that, well, in Italy, they take whey from the, the cheese make. They incubate it at a higher temperature of about 100 and overnight, and then it becomes uh, chock full of useful bacteria that they can add that to the vat of milk to get the fermentation going. The French, who make a lot of lactic-style cheese from uh, goat's milk, were taking just the way, not incubating it, just leaving it in a pot in the cheese house overnight at room temperature, using that the next day to inoculate the milk to get it started. And then they were also, in both countries, making yogurt-type cultures from the, from the milk itself, and usually starting with the milk from one of their favorite cows, a very healthy or strong cow is what I was taught, actually by a Swiss cheesemaker in the chalet-style cheesemaking process. And at the, in the spring, when they were getting ready to move the cows up into the mountains, they would make this culture, and this grandmother culture would be propagated during the four or five months that they made cheese. And so I, I was learning all this stuff, and my friend Suzanne said, well, why don't we just try it? Let's make a milk starter because we're making these uh, cheddars. So that seemed more appropriate. And that led me into developing cheese making around using a native starter culture that was would really give you the taste of your place because you're not now relying on something that was pr- made in a laboratory. The bacteria that are in these starters, we, we could roughly know what they are, but we know there's a lot of diversity there. Right. And so that was exciting. And that's formed the one of the foundations of how we make cheese at Parish Hill Creamery. Everything we make at Parish Hill Creamery uses these simple native propagated starter cultures. Yeah. yeah. I really love this story and the background to it because I, I think, you know, you spent so much time over your career working for other cheesemakers, developing these 
you know, beloved cheeses in the United States for other creameries. You have influenced so many small cheesemakers like myself all across North America. And the minute that the two of you got together, you and Rachel, I was just so pleased to know that you were going to open up your own place and do what it was that made you happy, you know, to create these cheeses in a different way of the old world style, but but new cheeses. So, you know, let's talk about Parish Hill and, you know, the two of you working together. Yeah, I think I think Rachel should step in here because she was the one that that said, you know, I want you to do your dream cheese business. And then when I described to her how the dream cheese business would go, she was somewhat, I had to win her over on that. So she should tell, she can tell that story a bit. So there was, unfortunately it was a no take back situation because I'd already said, yeah, stop working for other people and let's, let's do this. Let's, let's have a, what's your dream business? What's your dream cheese business? And Thinking that it would, I, yeah, I don't know what I thought, but uh, surprise, it was, uh, I want to make big, giant wheels of, of aged, long aged cheese. I want to make my own cultures. I'd like to make my own rennet. Uh, we need to get a salt. We need to get, made we need salt. to get salt from as nearby as possible. Yeah. And I was, yeah, the, the, there was a jaw drop and I looked around and said, no one else is doing this. We can't do this. That's not possible. This yeah, is crazy town. These are not, first of all, making all of your own cultures is a challenge. You and know that now. yeah, I know that now, <laughs> but also the styles of cheeses that you have chosen to make, I think they're so perfect for for you, Peter, and you, Rachel, but they're they're not the easiest cheeses. They're labor intensive. It's a really long make day. You use your hands really hard in these pasta falata style cheeses, that cacio cavallo, stretching it. You know, I had a great day making that with you, and thank goodness for your apprentice, Vito, who mm. helped me get my cacio cavallos to look He's normal. He's a natural. Isn't he a natural? He's a natural. So not only... I love that you take, you know, you followed your heart to do something that there's a reason why other people aren't doing it, but the passion really brought you to it. That would be the passion of Peter. Um, and <laughs> my passion would have been for Peter. Uh, yeah. Right. I mean, I would never do it without I, you, though. I, no, but I, but I say this, that I would never have done what we do um, had I not fallen in love because <laughs> it seemed like madness when we first started. I... I, I kind of just held my breath and jumped, and uh, but it turns out that it works. And not only does it work, it works really, really well. He he was onto something, and uh, yeah, we we are we have made some conscious decisions though in order to make it work. If I had to do this 365 days a year, I would we, I wouldn't. Um, this is I mean part of what makes this function is that we are seasonal producers yeah tell us all about those conscious decisions all the conscious decisions well sometimes they're only sometimes they're conscious in hindsight but don't forget um, that we it was all about we have to use raw milk it was about yes there was never a question uh that we would there was never a question of pasteurizing uh we and i was on board with that that part i was on board with talk about the type of milk talk about your your dairy partner who is just amazing there at putney school yeah you know, this is this is something that's really important because you know we're in, in amidst this dairy crisis, you know. And Rachel and I love to go back and forth in discussions, phone calls, text, whatever, you know, because we both are so passionate about keeping farmers on the land. And what is it going to take to do that? But you guys found a farm, you know, right down the road, the Putney School Farm. Peter, you have a long-standing relationship with them. You knew how they were making the milk, and you found a way to work seasonally with them. And, and what are the attributes of that milk well, that we, really make it up? Actually, we we went and had a conversation before we ever, I mean, when we were still trying to hatch this plan to start Parish Hill Creamery, we actually went and talked to Pete Stickney about the about the way that the cows, uh, the, the herd is managed, about the grazing, about all of it, and had a really intense conversation about what it was that we would need in order to be able to make cheese with this milk. And the conversation was about the difference between fluid milk and cheese milk yeah. and making sure that uh, appealing to uh, to his drive and his love for his cows and his appreciation for the land and the animals, but also helping, you know, having that conversation to make him understand that it is that that some of our needs are different than the needs of the co-op. He's also... Uh, he's also... Uh, um, <laughs> 
dairy farmer who, as you just recently explained to us as a kid, it was his job to lead the cows up behind the farm to pasture every morning and bring them down every evening. So he comes from a family tradition of grazing cows, of having a herd of just 30 cows. And that's what they have at Putney School, and it's a great match for us. We knew that that was what we needed. That was already there, that they grazed those cows as much as they can. They have a great pasturing system. They have enough pasture. They have enough land to make plenty of hay. But at the time, they were making more of the wrapped fermented bales because of the ease of doing it. And there was really, since the milk was going to the co-op, for as like a fluid, you know, all the farms really that are producing milk now in the U.S. or who aren't farmstead cheese-making farms are in a mode of producing milk that's ultimately going to be pasteurized, and flavor is not that important. Indigenous microbes, diversity of, you know, the microbiome and all that's not that important. Who cares? Right. But after we described to him what we were going to do, and I think it was a real nice throwback for him to his childhood, to his right. grandpa, grandma, and their, and what he had learned as a kid of how it used to be. And yeah. it was the, it's the same with me. You know, I grew up in the same place in Vermont, and my family had a dairy farm. And there were little cheese factories in Vermont uh, up till the Great Depression. Vermont was full of them, and so the farmers had a, a market for their milk. You know, and there were skilled cheesemakers using it to make cheese out of. Then we we went through several decades of, of, of you know, fast industrialization of food production. We lost the type of milk. We lost the, the skilled cheesemakers who made cheese in the small factories. And, and even in Vermont, we got larger factories and not much else right. until the Renaissance began in the late 70s with Shelburne Farms starting to make cheddar and Orb Weaver. Weaver Farm and then the Dixon mm -hmm. family, my family in the late early 80s making Brie and Camembert on our farm. Right. And then, you know, you go to the 90s where it was a veritable explosion of cheese making, ac making mm -hmm. activity in Vermont, spreading, not really spreading, but I mean, the idea that you could well, add, value, state, right. see, add value to this milk and make a better go at it as a dairy farmer with 30 to 50 cows caught on everywhere around the U.S. where people could get it together to do it. Now, not everybody could because you have to start a whole other business. So, But for us, let's get back to Putney School. It was a perfect match because all Pete had to do was make enough dry hay so that when the pasture quality was, was not the best, there'd be a good, still good nutrition for the cows. He understood it right away. Because what did he make when he was a teenager and a young guy? Same thing I helped, I made and helped other farmers make, square bales of dry hay. So it didn't take that long. And then uh, we also paid him a pre premium. We said, we, we'll pay you a premium to do this. You know, and, and Which he caught said, his ear. Or, no, actually, <laughs> we said to him, yeah. well, we can pay you this much. And he went, oh. I'll That's a it. premium. Of course I'll do yeah. it. So that was the idea of cheese milk. Right. But he also saw it as an opportunity, um, as opposed to a, a challenge or a difficulty. Pete Stickney saw this as an opportunity for the animals, for the, for the land, um, for us, but also for the school. Well, and as he said to us right away, after he began tasting the cheeses, these are great products. This, this is what I, when I... Now that I don't have to look at that truck pulling away with the milk to go make into gosh knows what, it makes me really proud uh, to know that we're working together. And we do work together. We, we, it is very much a relationship and a collaboration. We are constantly talking with him about what's going on with the herd, about what's going on with the pasture. I just saw you out uh, on social media walking the pastures the other just the other week, and I'm sure the pastures are looking really great right now. But, you know, I, I think that they're really great partners for you because you're a seasonal-based cheesemaking. You start generally in the beginning of May when the cows go out on pasture because you don't want to use any milk where the cows are fed fermented feeds. So it's all grass-based. And I think that this works really well because 
because at the end of the season, whenever it gets too cold and the cows are now getting that fermented feed, that's when you guys end your cheese making season. So you make use of every single day that you're is available to you to make cheese. Now in those other months, some of that milk is going to another cheese maker and then back to the co-op, right? Mm -hmm. To Agrimark. Mm -hmm. So for that Putney farm, it works out really well for them, doesn't it? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. and it works out well for uh, Parish Hill. Also works out for the other cheesemaker in our community. It's the, it's the kind of thing that that we both feel that there needs to be more of. Then there's opportunities on both sides for for better cheese from being made from real real cheese milk quality milk that's of the quality to make extraordinary cheese because the farmers understand what the cheesemakers want. And then the farmer's doing better because they get paid so much more. They don't have to milk more cows. They can stay on the, the farms that are relatively small, like the Putney School Farm. That, that landscape is one that very much defines um, my region in the Ole Valley. It's a lot of 50 and 60 cow dairy farms that are selling conventionally into co-ops. And I certainly tried to um, start those conversations with a lot of dairy farms. And you're, you took the words out of my mouth, Peter. I, I guess I wanted you both to talk a little bit more about, you know, in this climate, in this um, dairy industry environment that we're in, with prices being so low and a lot of dairy farms having to close down or contracts being pulled, is there an opportunity to have more of those conversations and how? Rachel can tell you an example that we just went through. I'm so uh, glad you're going to bring this one up with that, Woodlawn. Uh, that actually, this, this, this farm, Woodlawn Farm, is familiar to Sue because uh, Sue, uh, the Millers have bought some of their cows from the leeches and, their oh. and they're friends with the leech brothers who are running the woodlawn farm. Then they, the, one of the brothers called us up and wanted to come to our house and get a consultation. And Rachel's going to tell you what, how that went, what that was about. That's silly, but I will tell. Uh, yes, the, the conversation was about uh, uh, some brothers who took over the family farm, uh, realized very quickly after looking at the books that this was not, they were not both going to be able to make it doing what their father had done, and really looking at what can they do to keep the farm and keep the cows. Um, and so they actually looked at a, a several different possibilities and pursued a couple of different things. But one of the things that they ended up doing was looking for cheesemakers in the area who were having trouble getting good quality milk to make cheese, good cheese milk. And talked to Pete, talked to Pete Stickney, uh, really looked into what it would take for them to be able to change, modify their uh, their plan and their farm in order to make that to, to make that milk they, they actually reduced the herd size yeah. you were in, instrumental in writing some contracts and and helping them to find cheesemakers yes connecting with cheesemakers their, their milk is their milk is now going into uh plymouth cheese which is this venerable old cheese company that uh, Calvin, President Calvin Coolidge's father started, uh, and there's and it's owned by the state of Vermont, but the owners lease it, and they still have to make what's called the uh, the stirred curd granular or granular curd cheese, Plymouth cheese that they made there, and in addition they've created a whole line of their own cheeses. But and, they are and the other pl uh, little factory it goes to is Crowley Cheese, which is the oldest continuously operating factory in the United States that also makes granular curd cheese. So it's it's really interesting that their milk now has ended up becoming uh, you know the fundamental ingredient for these two venerable cheese companies in Vermont. How long was how long was that process? Because I feel like I remember when they first reached out to you. Years. It took two yeah, years. A couple years. And honestly, I think it's really great because if you tell a farmer what to do, they're not going to do it. But if they observe successes, I think I really believe that's the path to change. Is like you know we can be models for other people and you know in just people who want to want to do something a little different on their dairy farms and I think the two of you are, are just an amazing resource because what if you wouldn't have been there to say hey this is how let us help guide help guide you to this process and now this farm is still going that's amazing and better milk for the other cheesemakers better milk for yes, the other staff. 
What about that? No, absolutely. I guess real quick, just for our um, non-industry listeners, just for the cheese lovers out there, how do you define cheese-making milk? Cheese-making milk is milk that the microbiology of the milk, or we call it microbiome, the, the microbes that are in the milk are as undisturbed as possible from when that milk came into the buck, milking bucket and then into the cheese vat. So that would be cheese making milk. The other things that you would want to try to get uh, as a cheese maker would be to have the farmer work on breeding uh, to increase the protein amount in the milk so to benefit you from getting higher yield. But it's really essentially about having milk that's that's from a grass-based dairy because fermented feeds kind of wreak havoc on a lot of these traditional type raw milk cheeses that that we are focused on making. And uh, in generally speaking, you're going to be better off as a cheesemaker if you avoid milk that's that's from that kind of feed. Uh, there's just issues around some late gases that are produced, carbon dioxide can be produced in the cheese. There's more risk from that uh, in milk produced from fermented feeds just because you have a different microbiology in that milk, different right. bugs so, that So you're looking for the like these, these herds to be out on grass, dry hay, yeah. you know, high milk quality. Don't pump the milk too much. Get it into the vat as soon as you can on day one or within 24 hours. I love working with milk that's, that's you know, let, less than that. 24 hours I'm old. I'm going to say something even simpler. Uh, the first step towards cheese milk is milk that doesn't need to be pasteurized to be uh, used. Um, so it is milk that is not uh, the production. When you know you're going to be pasteurizing the milk, you're necessarily and rightly so going to behave differently in your production methods. So if you know right from the get that you are that this milk is going to be used as a raw product and is going to be turned into a raw milk cheese, you are going to handle it differently. There are different considerations. So right there, that's the. I just want to circle back. Um, we're, we're still talking about microbes, so this is still relevant. Um, to the <laughs> microbes cornerstone, are always, yeah, exactly. always relevant. To the Cornerstone Project, um, we are, uh, we're here at ACS, and there's such a diversity of types of businesses here. There are small one-woman cheesemakers like Sue. There are big, you know, multinational corporations who sell cheese or who make cheesemaking equipment and, you know, like, like pharmaceutical companies who are manufacturing cultures, things like that. And it's been really interesting for me as someone who almost exclusively works with small regional cheesemakers who are kind of working within regional food systems and, and advocating for the strength of those, of those regional food systems, which you guys definitely are as well. And I want to know if there's been any sort of negative reaction or what the reaction has been to the Cornerstone Project, which is kind of seeking to put the ability to culture in back in the hands of the cheesemaker. It's almost sort of like, it's like giving individual small-scale cheesemakers the tools to maybe one day not need. Cleave from. Yeah, to, ma to maybe not need to buy, you know, their Fromageks or whatever, uh, you know, whatever they're buying as or maybe as much um, or maybe even maybe even one day consumers will really like get into this, hopefully. Fingers crossed. Um, so I would love to hear more about that. I will say that so, thus far, no negative feedback. No one has said anything negative in front of me. Um, there may be negative things being said, but I honestly think that we do not pose much of a threat to the uh, health and well-being of those larger companies that are producing these the cultures there there will always be a market there are people there are companies there are people who are making cheeses that this is what they rely on they rely on something that is going to behave exactly the same way every single time they are pasteurizing they are standardizing and then they are um, inoculating and they're doing that so that so that the consumer can go and get the very same cheese every single time. That is not what the Cornerstone Project or what Parish Hill is about. Rather, and just by virtue of that, I don't think that, that we are threatening anyone <laughs> at all. Hopefully what we're doing is encouraging a broadening of their willingness to uh, the scope of their, oh gosh, golly gee. Uh, the, it's about the expression. Thank you. It's like, the, it's... 
taking it even one step further of expressing expressing the terroir and the craftsmanship yes when you're making your own culture yes and and not everyone's going to want to do this not everyone's going to be able to do this um but for those who can and those who want to, we are just trying to make sure that they that, that they have that opportunity, that the chance is there, and that we are able to share our experiences um, and, and help them see that it is possible and some great things can come of it. So I, I just want to bring everybody around to what the Cornerstone Project is. The Cornerstone Project um, came out of the American Cheese Society Conference when it was held in Providence in, what was it, 2015, Peter? Yeah, so it was yeah. 2015. 2015. So we were all at the award ceremony, and, you know, John Greeley, who is who is known to the cheese community, um, threw down a gauntlet. There's a category on American original cheeses, and oftentimes some of these American original cheeses are based off of European styles with some twist to them, right? Wouldn't you say? That's and a apt description. Yeah, apt description. And so um, we were going to visit another cheesemaker, Brian Civitello from Mystic Cheese. And um, Peter, myself, and Tania Darlington and my son Randy all met up together. And I think we passed the test because Brian Civitello had this idea based on what John Greeley said about American originals, that we should really be creating our own here in this country. We got together and I think we passed a test because he's like, I think we should all collaborate on an original style cheese. So of course I got excited and Peter immediately went into analytical mode. Like, how can we do this? We had it all decided. What does it mean? I, right. I, I, I was asking myself, what, is it, what, is it what does original what it, mean? What does it mean? And, what, and we decided even be? without you, Rachel. <laughs> but yeah, so it, this it grew meant, out of yeah. all of us coming up with this one style of cheese developed basically the recipe by you. It, it meant to make it elementally. I just thought you can't reinvent the wheel. It's like all the varieties of cheese have already been created. If you're going to just take a known variety and, and, and add a different culture to maybe produce a little different flavor on that Gouda or something, it's not that original. I thought that what maybe the thing we need to do for originality is to make it elemental. Like, to make the cheese as much as possible in an elemental way, meaning that we would have to make the ingredients, so a non-commercial way. So it would have to be raw milk, and the native culture would have to be made by the cheesemaker. From um, that milk. From that milk. And so that gave me a great opportunity. It's a little bit selfish mode here uh, to teach others how to do it. Because I think, you know, once people understand how it can be done, and it's not that difficult, that it's actually quite attractive way to make cheese. And it's very satisfying to unhinge yourself from the uh, corporations, you know. And, and then, you know, the other two ingredients in cheesemaking are rennet, which is the coagulant. Well, using a traditional calf rennet, you know, these are cow milk cheeses we're making, so I felt that was important. And we, we were using the same rennet made by the company that's the closest to us that makes rennet, and they're over the border in Quebec. So we're trying to stay very local to where we are. And, and then with the fourth ingredient, we're keeping it, again, as local as possible by choosing a salt from uh, a local salt works. And ours came from Maine. All of our perishable creamery cheese is made by the salt from the Maine Sea Salt Company. And Sue. And then the challenge for Sue and Mark was, where is my salt going to come from? New Which Jersey. Is, yeah. So, so <laughs> by, by putting those four elements together, the raw milk, the native culture made from the milk itself, the, uh, the rennet and the salt, we have the four elements to make cheese. Um, we, we just have to then do it. So I developed a recipe that would capture both sides of the bacteria, bacteria that can grow when it's not so hot, bacteria that can grow when it's a little bit hotter, too hot for the first group. And that meant that they can all survive. So my idea was to make a cheese. It's, it's like a semi-hard cheese, the cornerstone, and it allows all the bacteria to live. Let's just put it that way to some extent. You know, and so that that's really what it's about. And I I'll just close with the, my idea for it as I came up with it was that wow, I could, this could really be a thing to help 
bring back an old-fashioned way of making cheese and capture the taste of the place where you're making your cheese. Sometimes even the individual cow, you can look on their Instagram and see the jars of culture labeled by which cow it's from. And, and Peter says you can taste the difference. I love Sonia. Sonia's cultures. Um, and then, you know, the idea that this would become a regional cheese just was pretty amazing because there are three cheesemakers right now in the project. I'm a part of it at Birch Run. We're in southeastern Pennsylvania. We have a really cool cheesemaker in Connecticut at Cato Corner Farm, Mark Gilman. You know, we basically put put together, who's our wish list for this project? <laughs> and of course, Parish Hill. So the impact on it, don't you think... It, if one of us were doing it, it would be a nice story, right? But the fact that there are three of us doing it, I think is what is super exciting about this project because we're like covering the Northeast. It's a regional thing. And Rachel, the name, talk about the name. Cornerstone. Well, uh, as, as Robert Aguilera said as he walked past yesterday, love that Nor'easter. <laughs> we had a, he doesn't forget no we uh we there was quite a bit of discussion around what the cheese what the name of the cheese would be uh peter of course uh the impetus came from all, from all, everyone but me i was informed that we were doing this oh you have wrangled us plenty uh, yes it, yeah <laughs> Yes. Uh, charge. Uh, but Peter came up with a recipe and I definitely have have been the maintainer of the rules. And a part of that was I really was the person who decided ultimately what the name would be. We, you know, open to to ideas. We talked about some different things. But uh, for my thought was that a cornerstone, I was thinking of a building and I was thinking about this, that that first brick, that first stone that that anchors the 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 entirety of the building in this case but for the cornerstone project it was really sort of an anchor a first stone set for this new american cheese and the new american cheese hopefully will be will be much bigger than just the cornerstone but the cornerstone is a start and the the what i really hope is that over time individual cheesemakers small producers people who are passionate about cheese making for this about cheese making and about cheese and about dairy and farming um, that they will they will they will invest in making cheese milk and making the kind of milk that's re that's necessary if you want to make great cheese that they will go to whatever lengths it takes to get that milk then trust that milk that they will go to the lengths needed to uh, get the expertise to really make exquisite cheese and then trust their craft. Here, here. And from there, we will have uh, American cheese, real American cheese, a true American cheese making. A true American original. Thank you. A true American original. A true American. It's compelling. They're American originals, aren't they? <laughs> they sure are. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little hokey right now. Mm. I was in a session this afternoon um, with um, Andy Hatch of Uplands Cheese and Allison Hooper of Vermont Creamery. And it was just an interesting conversation about identity, like the one that we're having now. And uh, I think Andy had an interesting point at the end. He said, you know... You can only rely on the story so much, but at the end of the day, the proof is in the pudding. And what's pretty cool is that you both have such an amazing story to tell. And yet, if you didn't open your mouth once, you're making incredible award-winning cheeses that just blow us all away. So it's pretty cool that you're the full package. Taking home some ACS awards. We're about to go to the awards ceremony now, which means, unfortunately, we do have to wrap it up. But it is uh, humbling to hear what you have to say. You're such an inspiration to all of us. Thank you for what you do. Seriously, it's impressive. Thanks for doing it with us. <laughs> yeah, you're very welcome. Thanks, guys. But, but more than anything, thank you for coming along for the ride. I think we need a part two. To be continued, folks. Collective Creamery is Stephanie Angstadt, Sue Miller, and Alex Jones. Jordan Heil produced the podcast, and Mike Lorenz wrote our music. You can hear him on Thursday nights at the Tired Hands Brew Cafe in Ardmore, Pennsylvania. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You can learn more and subscribe to our cheese subscription at collectivecreamery.com.